I say to folks, if you want something bad enough, you'll choose to have a why that will take you through your uncomfortability into a new realm of living. But if you don't have a why of why you're going to do it, that's strong enough, you'll always find excuses to drop back into average and mediocre and be content. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am so excited to share today's incredible guest with you. Robert Hamilton Owens is a man of many hats. He's been and done a lot, mountain climbing, radio and TV personality, keynote speaking, minister, Ironman philanthropist, triathlete, special ops, pararescueman, and father of five, to name a few. But of all the pursuits he's undertaken, there's one title that best describes this literal force of nature. Robert is the fittest 66-year-old in the world, period. For more than 20... <laughs> <laughs> you wrote it. I'm just reading it. <laughs> I, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. <laughs> For more than 25 years, Robert's been speaking before audiences as large as 50,000 from San Diego to Moscow on motivational and leadership topics with past clients, including Navy SEALs, the New York Jets, Baltimore Ravens, South African Parliament, the Vietnamese Department of Foreign Affairs, and many others. When most have long since slowed as they approach their golden years, the 56-year-old in the world continues to routinely take unprecedented challenge and helps others see what can be achieved in their own lives. Robert, I already know this is going to be a lot of fun. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. You did good. I did. Hey, that's high praise from the fittest 66-year-old man in the world, to be sure. Actually, and listen, now listen, I didn't say that, remember? <laughs> and it was, it was fittest and mentally toughest 66-year-old, but I said, I didn't say that. Joe DeSena, the founder of Spartan Games, was crazy enough to say, you're nuts, Robert. And then he made that statement. So it was fun. That is so much fun. All right. So there's so many ways that we could take this and there's so many things I want to jump into. But what I love to do when I have guests on the show, Robert, is I love to dive into their past, dive into their background, talk about challenges and things they overcame when they were young. And more specifically, as we move through this, what inspired you to be doing the things that you're doing today? You know, if you're the clinical psychologist, you want to pick my brain. I probably have lots of issues. <laughs> <laughs> Like, like I'm pretty in touch with some of them. I was an adopted kid and my mom couldn't have kids. And so she adopted me and I had bent feet. And so when I was young, I had real flat feet, knocked knees, and I wore corrective shoes in grammar school. And that sort of tweaked my melon a bit because when all the kids were playing kickball, I was playing tetherball around a pole because I couldn't run. And when I finally was able to, you know, get those shoes off, you know, when, when they say to the kids, do we have to take him? You know, when they're choosing sides, that wasn't a fun time in, in grammar school. When I, when I grew up, I always wanted to somehow fit into something. 
And so I finally graduated to swimming and water polo in high school. And it was there that I said, I'm just an average guy. I'm not really good. The swimmers in my school were really, really good. Like they all had college scholarships. We put two guys on the Olympic team. And my head coach in high school ended up being the U.S. Olympic swim coach. So he was an Olympian that cracked the whip on high school kids. And I started I started swimming in ninth grade with the rest of the kids that started swimming in age group, like four, five, six, nine years old. So when I came in, I was lucky to make the team, allowed to hang out. But he said to me that hard work can beat better talent. And he then began to prove with a bunch of us normal kind of kids how to work in in smarter ways where we could attack things that people said were impossible. And I had a couple wins in that arena of doing things that people said I shouldn't do. And it sort of catapulted me into, you know, I can do stuff. I may not be the smartest, the handsomest, the, the most gifted, the best athlete, but if I'll study and train, if I'll work on my grades or whatever it might be, I can do better than predicted. And it worked out that way, even to the point that when guys came to me and said, hey, Robert, you need to be a U.S. Air Force Special Ops Pararescueman. I said, me? And they said, hey, you got more in you than you think. If we do this right, you can study and prepare and you can do this and you'll make it. Back then in my class, when I, when I finally was talked into this ability to do this, there were 150 guys in my class and we graduated seven. And at the end of that seven, they made me team leader. And it was one of those things where you have these moments where there is more potential than I see. And when I let others bring it out of me and I listen to others, I get mentored by others, I can be more than I normally would be. And that sort of catapulted me for the rest of my life that I looked for things that were somewhat, uh, not impossible, but no one's ever done it before. Or we don't encourage you to do it. And then I would study it, work on it, and I'd try to pull it off. And so it's made life fun and adventurous to me because I like to break, break through limits and do things that take a lot of mental work uh, as well as physical work. Any particular stories from your time as an Air Force pararescueman that stand out as exceptional in your mind? I think you said that we have about a 53% female audience. And so for the ladies that are listening, the guys can listen and go, wow. But the ladies would like this. My very first rescue, I got a call up in Alaska that there was some lady who was pregnant. And she, had a, she was having problems and it was, a, it was a medical emergency. I get on a helicopter. And we fly out at 20 below zero to some igloo land way up, you know, towards the North Pole. And I go into this, this little hut. It's all these, you know, Eskimo looking type situations and clothing and stuff. And there's this big lady. And they say to me through stuff, she's sick. She's got to have a baby. So I, I get her on the helicopter and I'm thinking, oh, my God, just don't have a baby. We've got an hour flight back to the hospital. And she looks at me, I get her locked in on her seat and stuff, and she pulls up her dress, and that kid is crowning. And I go, oh, no, I'm having a baby. And so I'm 24 years old, and I'm on the radio with my captain going, Captain, we're having a baby back here. And he said to me, it's good, rookie, it's all yours. <laughs> and so I'm in the back, and I deliver this child with a prolapse cord. And... All of a sudden, then the placenta comes out, and I have blood all over the back of my helicopter. I mean, it's just a crazy mess back there. And so 
We get the lady in, get her on a gurney, get her to the hospital. Everything's fine. Baby's good. So when I have my five kids, my OBGYN says, hey, we're going to have kids, you know? And I said, good, I'll deliver all five of my kids or I'll deliver my first kid. He said, you can't do that. So yeah, I started delivering babies at 24. And he just looked at me and said, okay. And so I delivered my first child, my second, my third, my fourth, my fifth kid to the the point on the fifth one, he didn't even show up. I mean, I'm in the hospital with the nurse and where's the doc? Well, here comes the baby. I'll take care of it. And he comes in and goes, hey, he did a good job and then left again. So that's wild. That's a wild story. <laughs> that is absolutely. Robert, talk to us a little bit about what happened after you left the military. Gosh, after I left the military, well, that's sort of, there's a lot of ways to go here. Actually, I was bored. And so I started smuggling literature in and out of the Soviet Union during the Soviet Cold War days. And so I would deliver Christian literature in and smuggle political documents out. Romania, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Soviet Union, and did that while going to school. And I got, I was just looking for something to do because I was bored of special ops and what do you do, you know, and school's boring. And so anyway, I went and got a degree in theology of all things. And then I went and planted a church, a non-denominational church in Nevada with athletes that were all getting kicked off football team, baseball, basketball for getting drunk and doing crazy things. And so I established the non-denominational church at a campus and did that for 25 years and ran for state legislature and had a TV program on Fox for 22 years uh, doing social issues with the governor and state legislators and stuff, solving leadership problems on the states. And then I traveled all over the world teaching and mentoring and coaching on business stuff. Got about 30 nations and 4 million miles with five kids and doing this church thing and just had a wild 25, 30 years. There's a ton to unpack in there, but I would be <laughs> remiss. That's why I said I don't know if I should go all that stuff. If we don't go back and just, oh, oh, by the way, I was bored and I, I just smuggled literature in and political documents out of the Soviet Union. Talk to us a little bit more about that. In particular, I'm curious about what you smuggled out. I mean, we're, it sounds like you were a spy. Were you doing this for a state agency? I mean, how, how did all this no, go? No, I, that was during Carter. And during Carter, we had the Helsinki Peace Accords on Soviet, Soviet nuclear weapons. And the SS-22s were getting their caps put on illegally in hidden cities. So nowhere in the Soviet map are these cities, but there are these cities that are just building nuclear weapons and putting the nuclear caps on them. And so we needed to know more information about how we were violating the Helsinki Peace Accords. And so... We would go in with Christian literature and deliver stuff there. And then we would find dissidents and they would give us political documents and we would smuggle them out and get them to Washington. And that would then work on our negotiations over the nuclear peace courts. So were you actually working for the Carter administration doing this? No, I was working for an organization in Europe out of Denmark. I mean, excuse me, out of Holland. And so I would fly to Holland and then I would line up with some guys and then they give us our assignments of what we're going to do, what we're going to pick up, pick up, and where we should not get caught. And then we would take off for two weeks or three weeks, and we would have, we'd memorize everything that we have to do. Then we'd burn everything before we went in, so there was no telltale trail of what was going on. We acted like college kids, and we had vehicles that were all fix, fixed for smuggling. So the floors moved, and the windows moved, the, the ceilings moved, and the, the Soviets, when we go in, they'd take drill bits. And they'd get they'd, like an oil bay. They'd put the 
the vehicles up on an oil bay and then they get underneath it and then they'd pound around on the frame to see if they could get different sounds. And then they'd take a drill bit and go, Bzzz. but we had the, the floor of the vehicle lined with steel plating so that whenever they would go Bzzz, up into our frame looking for things, the, the drill bits would break. And so they would look at us and their drill bits were breaking or they'd tap around on the windows and the sides to try to find out something was in there. And we would just throw a Frisbee and act like it was nothing. And it was packed with stuff. And um, you'd sweat a little bit and say, I hope we make it through this checkpoint. And then we get through and then we take off and go from nation to nation and do our stuff and then try to get out. Well, definitely sounds like that would alleviate any symptoms of boredness one would be experiencing. Any times where you you were really sure you were going to get caught? No, but there were many times when, you know, you just needed a miracle. So like we're up on the Russian border in 78 in Hungary. In Hungary. And um, trying to think Romania, Hungary, it was snowing. It was like December 31st. It was New Year's. And we got lost in a snowstorm. And Westerners are not supposed to be outside at night. We were supposed to be in a hotel because all the hotels write you up and the government wants to know where all the foreigners are. So they, they look at the registers of the hotels. But we were out smuggling stuff and delivering stuff. So we didn't make it back to our hotel and we got lost. And I remember just thinking, what in the world we're going to do in this whiteout, like your middle of Iowa and some highway and a whiteout and we just put together some pieces of stuff and finally drove two and a half hours through the snowstorm where you couldn't see 40 feet ahead of you and we finally made it to our place and when we got to our hotel that we were supposed to be at five hours earlier when we parked the vehicle we just took a, a breath of fresh air like oh my god we made it we got inside and who came in but one of our contacts out of nowhere three in the morning this guy comes walking in the lobby and we look at him and he looks at us. We knew who we were supposed to look at. And he just went, he shook his head. So we walked outside and we went, what the heck? And he said, my car broke down and I couldn't get her. And so five hours late on his part and five hours late on our part, we both went to the lobby at the same time. We downloaded all of our stuff, got into his vehicle in the dark. We went to bed and got out of there. But we had story after story like that. There were just these wild experiences that, that made you think, there better be a God in heaven because I don't know how this is going to work out. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. That's wild. I just want to touch on the the fitness, the things that you're doing. I mean, fascinating that you basically were standing in front of a pole when you were a youth because you had bent feet, and now you've accomplished some of these amazing things. So, so talk to us about, you know, in, in particular, talk to us about these Ironman triathlons and some of these things you've done, and really why you decided to start doing that stuff. You know. Back to your earlier thing, because you're the doctor. I think kids have issues. 
I think families have issues, kids have issues, and we all work with our stuff differently. And I think that I had enough rejection in my life from grammar school. And then my mom got lupus and she died and then they brought her back to life. And so that was a whole nother trauma in my life. And then I'll just say to you, I was sexually assaulted twice Mm. by eighth grade. And so there was unresolved issues there. So that when I finally made it towards high school, um, I had I had baggage. And I didn't know how to work on the baggage. And so I began to um, want to excel at something and, and find out something that I could do. And I think that many times people with baggage become extreme in either positive things or negative things because they bury unresolved issues on on a for me, on a positive drive to accomplish. I didn't want to think about my past that was unresolved, so I focused really hard on becoming something. And I think that that stuff drove me to not want to do normal, but wanting to to get an identity where I liked myself. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I wanted to respect myself because I had unresolved stuff I didn't know how to work through. And I never wanted to be laughed at again. I never wanted to have kids say, do we have to take him on the team? Um, I wanted to I wanted to have value. And I wasn't the smartest kid. I was raised by a Menza father. And so for the audience, Menza's genius. And so my dad was a Stanford Phi Beta Kappa undergrad in grad school. And he never got a B in his life. And J. Edgar Hoover came and grabbed him, put him in FBI during World War II. So I, I was in a family of overachievers. And I wasn't the academic adopted kid. So I, I look for a place to carve my niche. And many of your, your people listening, they're also working on their issues. And some of them are doing socially acceptable things as they work on their issues. And some are doing non-socially acceptable, de- destructive things, masking their issues. And so I chose to do stuff that guys said, that's a wow, and nobody can do that, and nobody should try to do that. And so I wanted to like myself, respect myself. And I, I took on these challenges. So like pararescue was that super challenge. It's the Navy SEALs of the Navy, I mean, of the, of the Air Force. And when I got out, I read a magazine in college about the toughest event in the world, toughest endurance race in the world. And Sports Illustrated said, this is crazy, only crazy people show up. And I thought, that suits me perfectly. And that was, the, that was in the beginning of Iron Man. So when I read that Sports Illustrated article, and it was on Why World of Sports back in those days, I said, I can do this. And everybody said, you can't. And I raised money and did it. And that was year number three, back when we still drank beer. And that was in Honolulu, because Iron Man is year one, two, three, Honolulu. In year four, it moved to Kona, where you see it on TV now. And so I did that because it was impossible. And I wanted to do another impossible thing which was the toughest thing in the world. And that then led me to, you know, between smuggling Bibles and stuff, just wanting to stay on the edge of doing things people said you can't do. And that led to me, you know, at 50, my son said to me, God, you're really old, dad. And I said, like, how old? He said, like, you're a half a century. I mean, like, you might as well just shoot yourself. And he was a punk. And so I said, I'm going to make a comeback. And so at 50, I started doing Ironmans again. And I've done 11 since 50, 12 total. And that's because people just said, 
why don't you be normal? And I said, and I have some friends that said, anybody can be average, but why don't you live legendary? Anybody can be mediocre. Anybody can survive, but why don't you live that bigger life and tap into what you really can do? And I, I said, as a lifestyle, I want to do that. I want to do what I can do normally, but I also want to press the limits of my life to see if I can actually do the stuff that people say is impossible. So it's, it's been fun. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how someone listening to this, what are some actionable strategies that people can take so that they can live that kind of a life? Because a lot of people have great ideas, but for a variety of reasons, such as fear and people in their environment, other influences, they choose to stay where they are. Everything that a person dreams about is outside their comfortability. Everything. So if you want to be comfortable, you won't do anything. Because people like status quo and they don't like being insecure. We would always rather be a senior than a freshman. You know, a freshman is insecure, doesn't know anything. A senior knows everything. And we get to a place in our life where we like being that senior. I know my supermarket. I know my friends. I know my weight. I know my money. And I just get comfortable in the status quo. And everything that a person dreams about is outside the status quo and it's going to cost them something. And it's going to cost them being uncomfortable and have to be a freshman again. And nobody likes that. And so I say to folks, you know that the only way you're going to get the weight off or the only way you're going to accomplish this or do this is you're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to suffer with mental pain of, oh my God, can I really do this? Do I really want to do it? And what's it going to cost me? And anybody who does anything has to break out of the rut of normalcy and move into a place of uncomfortability of personal growth. And it will take a battle. Everybody wants to be a winner, but no one wants to fight a battle. People want to be overcomers, but they don't want to have to be in the struggle of overcoming. So I say to folks, if you want something bad enough, you'll choose to have a why that will take you through your uncomfortability into a new realm of living. But if you don't have a why of why you're going to do it, that's strong enough, you'll always find excuses to drop back into average and mediocre and be content. And then I say to them, let me see your top five friends because you'll be like your top five friends. And losers hang with losers. Winners hang with winners. Excuse-minded people look for excuse-minded people to hang with because they comfort them. And so if you want to, to grow as a person, you're going to have to change your world, change your, your friends, change your social settings. You have to change things to go to the next level in your life. And most people don't want the mental pain of saying goodbye to their friends who are their friends at one level, but they're not their friends to get you to the next level. And people don't want to say goodbye to relationships because it's painful to say, I like you, I love you, I'm for you, but you're not helping me get where I need to go. I need to find bigger thinking, bigger people, other groups that demand of me the potential that's in me to come out. And they encourage me to go to that next level. And so most people don't want to do it. They want to live in the same small town with the same relatives all around them all the time, you know, doing the same things. And you can't do anything if you stay in the status quo. But you have to choose mentally to say, I'm going to tackle myself. I'm going to, I'm, I'm a project and I know my brain and I know it's going to give me excuses and it's not going to want to do this. So I'm going to have to take myself on 
and know that I'm going to press through this by gaining health. So I'm, I'm talking a lot. I don't know if you want me to talk this much. So our thing with when we train Navy SEALs and Air Force Pararescue or Special Ops candidates is there's something called the 20X principle. And the 20X principle is there's 20 times more potential in you, here's the kicker, than you've ever allowed someone to bring out of you. You can't get it out yourself. You have to go be with someone, a mentor, a coach, a teacher, someone who will, you say, I submit to you that you work with me and bring out me the stuff that I don't know how to get out of me because I know there's more in me than I'm living and thinking. And so we say these Navy SEAL candidates, you know, about Hill Week and Buds or Air Force, we're going to, we appreciate you dreaming that you want to be special ops. But the way forward is through pain. Mental pain, emotional pain, physical pain. You're going to have to take yourself through levels of discomfort to find out that you really can do what you want to do, but you know it's going to be painful to let us work you with you to bring that out of you. And most people quit. They get to a certain level of pain, mental pain, relational pain, psychological pain, and, and the mind will quit before the body will. And these guys will, like in my class, 150 guys start, and we graduate seven, the best guys all quit. The, the, the really gifted folks quit. It was the ones that had a tenacity to say, I'd rather die than quit. I, you will not break me mentally. And those guys hung in there and they were the C students or the B students. They were the guys that never got a first place, but they were scrappy and they just hung in. And so some people, they don't want 20 times potential brought out of them because they don't want to go through the process. And some say, I'll go to Al-Anon, I'll go to Alateen, I'll go to AA, I'll go to this place, that place, but I'm going to allow somebody to get into my life and get me out of this rut that I'm in because there's more in me than I've ever allowed to be developed. I love this. And one of the things that I'm thinking about as you're sharing this is there's a lot of reasons that contribute to one's success or failure. And you, you mentioned the people that you surround yourselves with, having that 20x principle that you can really get behind and, and opening yourself up to let somebody else bring your gifts out of you. But another thing that impacts people along the way of their journey is anxiety and stress, which can come from a variety of sources. Talk to us about some tactical strategies people can use to really overcome anxiety in their life and be more resilient mentally. It's a great question. Let me give you a picture first. When a Navy SEAL is in a helicopter and he's sliding down a rope down into a firefight, when he lands on the ground, his heart is pounding through his chest. He can hardly breathe. The adrenaline's rushing so much. And he's got to gather himself in the situation and become in control while his body is out of control. What we teach in special ops is a four-step process. I'm working on anxiety and panic. that works for ladies, mothers. It'll work for anybody. Number one is breath control. Your emotions are attached to your breathing. So when you see some guy going like this, <laughs> that's an emotion that's captured that shallow breathing. So when you see athletes bent over and they're out of breath, when you see people uh, get, get uh, nervous or panic, they, <laughs> they lock up. So if you can control your breathing in any circumstance, you can control your emotions. 
So what we teach is deep nose breathing versus mouth breathing. And so we have a thing where you, you count to four and you take a deep breath and hold it and then let it go for four. And that takes so much mental work that you don't have, you don't have time to then think about your emotions that are screaming because you go inward and you focus on getting deep breathing and then you release it and your brain cannot do two things at once. It will focus on you with your deep breathing, getting a hold of that parasympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight, Mm -hmm. and you then control it. So when you take your deep breaths and you let them out, you do that three times, that emotion of panic in your emotions will have to submit to you. It can't run you anymore. So when we work with our guys, we teach them, we're going to stress you into panic and anxiety, but you can mentally control it with, number one, learning how to deep nose breathe and not do the panic little, (laughs) what am I going to do? Panic, I'm scared. You know, get seize that emotion with breath control. Number two, we have self-talk. We have a positive self-talk where we speak out loud. I can do this. It's going to work out. I can make it. I've been here before. And as you're speaking out loud, your brain has to shut down inside with the negative thoughts. So when you couple the breathing, I can do this. I'm a, I could, I'll figure this out. I'll work this through. I'm trained for this. When you begin to verbally self-talk, you begin to get control of all the negativity that's in you. So then number three, we go to micro goals. Micro goals is, can I do this now for the next 30 seconds? And I, and I break eating the elephant down one bite at a time into small, small mini goals. Take one minute. Just do this for one minute. Going to work out. At the end of 30 seconds or a minute, you'll find that that emotion has ceased. And you can then refocus your mind and get it back where you want it to be. So I had a lady come up. I was speaking at a conference and she said, I've had anxiety for 15 years and I take pills every night before I go to bed. My husband hates it. And I said, okay. So I went through this with her in front of 150 people, had her stand up, you know, let's practice. How many of you in here had the HR people? Okay, how do you HR people have a bunch of people that are full of stress and anxiety to take pills? You know, the HR people were, oh, I got a bunch of employees. Okay, let's do this to practice thing. So we practice this, you know, breathing and the positive self-talk and the micro goals. And then number four is visualization. Visualize yourself being whole and working through this and it working out. So we get that thing and she goes to bed that night and she... At midnight, wakes up with a panic kind of thing. And so she goes into a deep breathing laying next to her husband. <laughs> and she begins to talk to herself out loud. I can do this. It's all going to work out. Don't need these pills. I can work on it. And her emotions subsided. And she went back to sleep. So the next day at the conference, she came to me and she said, she stood in front of her victory. Hey, guess what? I had my panic attack last night. Didn't take my pills. My husband thought this was great. <laughs> and I said, well, how'd it go? She said, I broke my panic down. And I wouldn't let the emotions take me out of my zone. And I walked myself through it. And I had the first win in my life in 15 years. Well, you know, moms have the same thing. You know, with little ones. I mean, when my number two son ran out the front door in his diaper and ran down the street 
and found his way to a freeway on-ramp and ran down the freeway on-ramp. And we're chasing him the whole way. And he's giggling and laughing, running onto the freeway. You know, as a parent, you have these moments where you go, oh, my God, <laughs> this is too much. And then you focus yourself and say, I can do this. That broken leg's not going to kill him. You know, this car thing's not going to do this and that. You know, you, my, I mean, my daughter broke her arm off in gymnastics. You know, she had backflip, missed the pit, broke the thing off. She stands up, her arm's hanging off, just broken off. You know, I'm looking at her and I go, it's cool. No problem. Just look at me. Let's breathe. She's seven years old. She's breathing. You know, I make the way to the instructor, grab her arm, put her on a, on a thing, and wrap it up, take her to the hospital. You know, but she just looked at me like, should I scream? Or should I, what should I do, dad? Because my arm's broken. And I, you know, you give her, it's okay. We'll work this through. Parents are going, oh my God. You know, <laughs> no, we're not going to lose control here. We're just going to walk this thing through. So I really feel for young families because they have panic, anxiety all the time. But if you're not careful, you'll get that emotional. <laughs> then you say the wrong thing. Then you do the wrong thing. Then you make a bad decision. Then you've compounded the whole situation and you got a real mess on your hands besides the original issue. So we work with Navy SEALs, get on the ground, breathe, bullets are flying all around, gather yourself, assess the situation, talk it through, then get back engaged, let that training work for you. So everybody has panic. Everybody has anxiety. I've had it. But you learn, hopefully, this is a, this is a situation we can handle. This does not have to crush us. We will make it through. It's not going to kill us. Let's work it through step by step. And it, it works for anybody. So this is fantastic advice. I love that you shared those actionable steps. We're getting close on time, but I wanted to give you a couple moments to talk about your new book, which is out this week, Beyond Average. So take us through what a reader is going to get from getting their hands on this book. People ask me how I ran seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. People ask me how I did my 12 Ironmans. People ask me how I did that Navy SEAL Hell Week, where I'm the oldest guy to ever survive this Navy SEAL Hell Week. And I say, it's a craft and a skill that's been honed over years. And so the book is, I've been average all my life. Never got a first place in anything. I was a C student coming out of high school. And I knew that, that I wanted to have a better life. And I submitted myself to coaches, teachers, mentors who took me beyond being average. And it's the story of my 20s all the way to 66 on how does someone do what people tell them they can't do and they tell them just to be average. And I said, I want to live like others beyond average and accomplish things. So that's what the book is about. The book has a little salty language in the beginning just because that's a Navy SEAL experience. But uh, on the other hand, uh, the book is about teaching people how to overcome and uh, encouraging them to let someone bring out of them what they would like to have brought out of them, but it'll take a you know a lot of work. That's so the book comes out the, the end of the month, and it's because people keep saying, "How'd you do this stuff?" So I said, "Okay, I'll teach you how to do this stuff." Perfect. And <laughs> I I've loved this. You know, I, I feel like we probably could do a whole nother episode just on some of your stories, which I, I imagine are as wild as some of the stuff you're talking about with the, with the smuggling. Uh, Robert, I've thoroughly loved our discussion today. As you know, I wrap up every episode by asking my guests one question. And that is, what is your biggest help? The single most important piece of information you'd like the audience to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? 
that they need to find people who will see them for who they really are and help them break out of the ruts that they're in, that their best days are ahead, but their decisions are determining their destiny. And they've, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. And you've got to break out and ask for help, whether it's eating, drinking, education, whatever it is, raising kids, you've got to find someone that can encourage you and help you go to the next level. Perfect. So well said. Robert, where can people connect with you and find out how they can get their hands on Beyond Average? Um, my website is my name. It's Robert Hamilton, like the president or the stage play, roberthamiltonowens.com. And they can come there and learn more about what I do and where I speak and that kind of thing. And then probably at the end of the month, they can go to Amazon and they'll, they'll see the book. All right. Check that out. And for those of you at the gym or behind the wheel, we've got you covered. Everything Robert Hamilton Owens will be available at thedailyhelping.com and the show notes for this episode, as well as in the Daily Helping app available in Google Play and iTunes. Robert, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You know, I'd like to say one thing. If you're listening to this, this podcast and it has encouraged you, I would ask you to do Dr. Richard a favor and contact him and tell him what you like about his program and what you liked about this episode so he can continue to try to encourage you to be the best that you can be so you can you can help by getting in contact and giving commentary to dr richard that's what i would like the folks to do oh i love that and that would certainly constitute a daily helping for sure robert again this has been a blast and and i certainly hope this is not our last conversation this was a lot of fun thanks so thanks again and As well to each and every one of you who tuned into this episode, thanks for checking us out. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, especially if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. <laughs>